0: Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is Branson Parler. I am professor of theological studies at Kuiper College, and this is the Kuiper Collective podcast episode number two. Yeah. Uh, we're off and running, uh, and uh, I'm excited to have Jeff Fisher with us today. And so, uh, Jeff, uh, glad to have you here. Uh, say a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, uh, especially maybe for you know for Kuiper alumni. Uh, you've been here a good number of years, but if folks are you know from way back yeah. in the day, they may they may not know you. So um, where you're from, how'd you end up at Kuiper? Yeah,
1: so this is my seventh year at Kuiper College. I'm now serving as academic dean and I'm associate professor of theological studies. Uh, originally, I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so a fellow Hawkeye here, go yeah, Hawks. that's right. Um, we've got a few here on faculty and staff. Yeah. Uh, I did my PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and then came to Kuiper after completing that. And previous to that, I'd served as a pastor um, for a little over five years in, in Minnesota. So I've got some ministry and academic experience. Nice. Sounds like a perfect fit for Kuiper. It, it is. Uh, it's been a great. Plus, fit. you're
0: a you're a star member of the uh, faculty intramural basketball team, uh, which
1: I like to pass the ball and sometimes score.
0: Yeah, that's that's it's it's crucial. Uh, which I, and I do just want to note that that our faculty team is the winningest basketball team
1: in, in history. the history of <laughs> Kuiper's intramural cumulatively. Partially because we stay,
0: and students <laughs> rotate through. Uh, we just come back and win every year. Right. Um, until Until we run up and down the long court. I think we need to go
1: back super. through the logs and see how many wins we actually have. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's, it's quite a few. Um, well, we're glad you're here not just to talk about basketball, uh, but we want to dig into a couple different things. Today we're going to talk uh, a little bit about spiritual formation. Uh, and thinking about what spiritual formation is, why that's so crucial, especially for leaders in the church, uh, to be developing uh, in that area, and then talk a little bit about uh, one of your more recent scholarly contributions uh, to a book called "Trinity Without Hierarchy." Uh, and so we're gonna two very different right. <laughs> two very different topics, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna dig into those a little bit. So, uh, so you teach a class on spiritual formation, and just this past summer you taught. Uh, a course in the Master of Ministry program on spiritual formation. So maybe just say a little bit about how, how you would define and understand spiritual formation, um, what it is, and, and why it's so important.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the basic essence of what I teach in the spiritual formation course of what the definition is, is that the formation part comes from the language in Romans and Colossians of being formed or conformed or transformed into the image of Christ. And then the spiritual part is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's really the Spirit's work in us to be more conformed to the image of Christ, to the likeness of Christ. Um, And then particularly, um, we focus on things like how do we do this? It's a very practical class, both the one I've taught at the undergraduate level and now most recently at the graduate level, um, looking at things like spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, things related to scripture reading, prayer, fasting, we spend a lot of time on Sabbath and solitude, um, both in the undergrad and in the master's class as well. Uh, so it, it, it's really intended to think through what are some of the rhythms, what are some of the practices that reflect and model what Jesus himself did and then that the Spirit uses to shape us to be more like him.
0: Yeah, so when you when you talk about those things, it's kind of interesting to hear the variety of different disciplines, different formation. Um So I'm kind of curious, as you have students in that, both in the undergrad and the graduate level, are there, is there any resistance or are there things that students like, I'm not familiar with this? Why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, What, where do you see maybe people kind of wrestling or struggling with this concept of, of spiritual formation and what it means to live that out the the most? Where do you see those things? Yeah.
1: So there's a couple of areas. Um, The most, uh, the, the most resistance comes from things related to time. So students, like many of us, have a hard time giving up time for things like Sabbath or even solitude, chunks of solitude. Um, you know, I, I prefer doing like 24 to 36 hours of a solitude type retreat. It's a little hard to require that from students in their busy schedules. But even requiring four to six hours of that get away just by yourself, just you and God, uh, it's, it's a challenging thing. And they're not necessarily resistant to it. Theoretically or theologically, they just look at their schedules and go, "I have not set my life up in such a way that there's even space for that." And then the Sabbath rhythm of like taking, um, you know, a day every seven days of setting aside that for rest and refreshing, renewing activities—that's also quite a bit of a challenge. Um, It's been interesting more recently. It's 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 easy to see students willing to try fasting. Um, they'll give up food, they'll and, and more so now, they'll give up technology, but giving up their time to dedicate it to something spiritual is, is quite a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And I think it's true for all of us.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, I mean, I struggle, it's one of those things where we look at these things and say, I love the idea of Sabbath. Yes. I love the idea yeah. of Sabbath rest. I love the idea of solitude, but bridging that gap between kind of saying, that sounds good, yeah. uh, that sounds like something I should do, and actually doing it, that's a pretty hard bridge to cross.
1: It is, it is, yeah. But it's so significant, it's so important for us spiritually, for our spiritual health, for our emotional health. And again, I mean, you see Jesus did this. He sets aside time to go away with the Father. Um, it, you know, if anyone theoretically didn't need this, it's the divine Son of God hmm. who is empowered by the Holy Spirit Yet he himself sets up this rhythm that, I mean, it's, it, he does it himself, carrying it out just as was set up, established at creation of this six days of work, one day of rest. And so there's, there's definitely significant value to observing the Sabbath and having those kind of practices. Yeah. And, and one of the things we also try to emphasize in spiritual formation is some flexibility um, because some of the resistance comes, well, isn't this just legalism? Aren't we just following rules? Um, is this works-based righteousness? Uh, that we're we're really trying to say and emphasize that we're doing these things because God has blessed these things, not because we're earning some kind of favor with Him. But God's told us like this is this is what you need. This is what the rhythm that you have, um, the communication possibility you have in prayer with God, uh, the reading the Word where and hearing the Word where He's revealed Himself to us. I mean, all of those things are for our benefit as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so when I, you know, when I think about uh, uh, this difference between information and formation, mm-hmm. like that, that we're kind of circling around, it's like, so I have in my head this information about who God is. Yeah, God is God. I'm not God. Um, but it seems to me like part of what we're talking about here is this divide between a kind of intellectual knowledge. Mm-hmm. Versus the spiritual formation, the the knowledge that comes through actually being able to have times of solitude. Right. Actually taking a Sabbath. And and I wonder if sometimes we focus so much on the intellectual dimension of knowing who God is that we don't realize that there's this layer to knowing God that that isn't just about the intellect. That, yeah. that there's a kind of knowledge yeah. of God that you can only have... In and through these particular practices, right, right, uh, which is, I don't, I don't know. I think I struggle with that, and I wonder if a lot of people, like, yeah, I know God is God, but if you can't take a Sabbath, right, do you do you do you really know is that, f- or or yeah, what is what kind of, right, is that the kind of knowledge that you know? As James says, that well, the demons have that kind of knowledge, right, um, or is it the kind of knowledge that you know I think about Psalm 46:10 be still and know right. that I'm God that yeah. only in a certain kind of stillness yeah. uh, do you get do you get that knowledge
1: and, and Paul does this in Ephesians to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge so there's a kind of knowledge that is deeper or greater than just that informational cognitive knowledge and he uses the same terminology of knowing this knowledge that surpasses knowledge. So yeah. knowing God in a, in a deeper way, I think it is that functional, that practical living out what you actually believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. So when you think about this is spiritual formation, developing these spiritual disciplines, why is this so important, uh, especially for church leaders, people who are in, in positions of responsibility, leading, pastoring others, um, wh- why is that so important, especially for them yeah. to be cultivating these disciplines? I, th- I
1: mean, there's several things that we, we went through in this class and worked together and collaborated with with pastors and other people in the class. Um, one of them is that, you know, it's, our, it's the responsibility of spiritual leaders to help others grow spiritually. And so if you yourself are not engaged in these things, you, you know, the whole phrase of you can only take someone so far as, as you've actually gone— if you're trying to disciple other people and help them be spiritually formed, you also have to take care of your own soul. Um, and related to that, then, is all the expectations and pressures that come with being a pastor or a spiritual leader, meetings and preaching and all kinds of organizational structure, strategic planning things that can easily use up all of your time. And they're really, really, really good, important, very significant things that are for ministry and for the church, but they can be draining on your own spiritual health. And so there has to be these, these set aside times where you are being saturated by who Christ is and by what he's wanting to do with you personally as well. And I think it's, it's really significant for spiritual leaders to have that kind of time uh, and those kind of practices to be saturated by Christ.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, it just strikes me as so—I mean, I grew, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I work part-time uh, at my church on pastoral staff. And it's just—in it, my experience, I was reflecting on that uh, this, this week— if you were to put this statement out there to pastors, if you were to say, pastors as a group are very spiritually healthy. Yeah. How do you think most pastors would respond to that?
1: Well, I think you see now a lot of statistics that are saying most pastors would say that's not true. Like, I think you'd have a high percentage of pastors saying, um, I, I could really work on my own spiritual health. Um, you know, we use, we use texts like the emotionally healthy leader that also addresses those kind of things that, um, it's, it's directly connected to expectations and workload demand kind of things that it's hard for pastors and church leaders to carve out that time because a lot of, a lot of times that time is already spoken for by all these other activities and everything. Um, I think, you know, there's also a, uh, Congregational expectation, or uh, you know, a broader lay expectation of the pastor is always on. The pastor is always serving, and not a lot of thought is given to what does the pastor himself or herself actually need spiritually. Yeah, and you know, some churches are, are are better at that, and are and more churches are getting better at it of giving these you know weeks off, time off to go away, to spend in solitude, in Sabbath, sabbatical kind of stuff. Um, I think it, it it still needed more.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was I was just as you were talking about that. I was thinking what what could churches do, to come alongside their pastors and to and to serve their pastors well. I mean, are there? Yeah. W- what exactly does that look like? It, it seems like part of this is this, this interesting tension that pastors pastors are in, where it's it's like it's your job right to be spiritual right, and so if you. Sort of ever express any vulnerability, yeah. About like, man, I'm really, I really don't want to preach this Sunday. Like, right. I feel, I feel drained. I can't, yeah, I can't do this. Well, it's your job, right? And and so this this tension of how 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 can churches and pastors uh, work together to make sure? Because I would say not only is that bad for pastors, it's probably bad it's for bad the for church. The church, it is. Uh, yeah. and, and so is it is it just that there's. So much expectation on the pastor that the pastor kind of has to fill so many different shoes or, or mm-hmm. roles, uh, or, or what? Yeah, I'm kind of curious about your yeah. thoughts yeah. on what a church <laughs> could do. I
1: think it can kind of all be summed up in one of our taglines here at Kuiper, Aura at Labora, hmm. of not only the rhythm of pray and work, aura as prayer and labora as work, but really what was embedded in that in that phrase is that prayer is working and working is prayer not just that they're back and forth. Um, and so seeing that the time that a pastor devotes to their own spiritual life, quote unquote, counts hmm. as their work, that, that's included in their hours of office hours or work hours or whatever, um, which I think the assumption is, well, pastors, they have to do that on their own time, just like anybody else has to do it on their own time. If they're going to the office or going to the manufacturing place, um, but I think there is something more required—I mean, James uses this language, right? There's yeah. something more required of those who teach, of those who preach. Um, and I think those requirements and expectations need to really be included in what you want from your pastor. Because like you said, it's actually going to benefit the church as well Yeah, if your pastor is spending this time. And, and maybe that's like, instead of preaching 27 weeks in a row— you, every four or five weeks, you have a guest preacher come in, you you know, finish your series, have a break. Somebody else does that, takes that um, responsibility, and, and carve out that space in a, in a kind of a rhythmic way as well. Um, again, there's some churches that, that, that do this already, um, that have seen the value of this, and other churches that are, are toying with these ideas. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. That's some good insight. Again, the goal here is not to pick on pastors or churches, but no. to say how could wh- what does it mean for them
1: together, right. to be in this healthy right spot, right? Um, because somehow it's 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 been concluded that it's selfish for a pastor to go on a weekend solitude retreat, whether the pastor himself or herself thinks that, or whether the congregation thinks that. When it's like, no, this might be the most self giving thing that a pastor could do for the congregation is go away and just be in the presence of God. I mean, we used in the Discipleship and Spiritual Formation, I kicked the class off with talking about Moses and using the Second Corinthians 3 passage where Moses, you know, lifted the veil. Um, he's going into the tent of meeting and in this time with God, which is obviously great for Moses to be right there and observing the presence of God. Yeah. But it also ends up being great for the people, even though they're re- resistant to it initially, and they're like, Moses, cover your face, you're glowing. Yeah. Um, it's also you know, then great for us, generations way after Moses, that he got to have that experience with God. And then Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3, we all, with unveiled faces, get to contemplate the Lord's glory. We all have the opportunity to do what Moses alone got to do in the Old Testament by going into that tent of meeting time with God. Um, And I think that was was pretty significant for that class. Um, And I think it's pretty significant in our lives as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that's great. So I want to take a little bit of a turn in terms of our topic. Uh, But before we do that, I'm, I'm wondering... So maybe somebody wants to follow up on this. What's one or two books that you would say is a good entry point? Uh, and then, you know, I know you did some podcasts on this with your class this right. summer. So maybe if you want to put in a plug for that, direct people to find that.
1: Yeah. So the, if you're interested in some of the books, that's actually what the podcast was for. It was called the Master Spiff Podcast because a couple of students affectionately named our master's class in spiritual formation Master Spiff. Um, and it's at anchor.fm slash master spiff, or you can just Google Master Spiff Podcasts and find it. It's on Google Podcasts and Spotify and other places that you can find podcasts. Um, and so that podcast, what, what I actually did was have two students, and one of them, three students, each select a book and read it. And then I interviewed them together, two students or three students at a time, about the book and what the contents were, whether they'd recommend the book. Um, And there was just this neat dialogue of of a variety of books, some very practical, some a little more theoretical, theological, um, and just have this great conversation with some who are already serving in ministry, some who are considering ministry, um, looking at various aspects of spiritual formation and discipleship on their own. And, you know, a couple of them that come out, one is uh, that I already mentioned, Emotionally Healthy Leader, um, there's also Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and uh, there's a couple other ones that connect with that series by Peter Scazzaro. Um It's very practical, doesn't necessarily do a lot of the theological work that's kind of assumed. Um, the one that we use at the undergraduate level is the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, which is a very practical guide, gives you a whole bunch of ideas for practices, um, for ways in which to incorporate that into your own life. And Habits of Grace by David Mathis uh, is the other book that gives a little bit more— it's a, it's a popular level one, um, but gives some of the theological background to why these certain practices or habits are or where God it pours out His grace in our lives and, and transforms us by the Spirit. There's a lot of yeah. others. Yeah. I have a bibliography keep keep of going. about 150 yeah. Yeah. that overwhelm the students when I give it yeah. to them.
0: That's right. Here it is. Just check these out on the weekend. Right. Uh, yeah. See see what you can I find. I actually
1: have, you know, a whole shelf of them here in my office.
0: <laughs> nice. So, uh let's again shifting gears, let's talk a little bit about Trinity without hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> And so this is, uh, we're, we're jumping into the deep end right. uh, theologically here, but this is, so this is a book uh, edited by Michael Byrd, yep. is that right? And, yep. and so this is a book that you've got a chapter in this book on Trinity without hierarchy. And so maybe, if you can, give us a little bit of a background. I know this this controversy has kind of been brewing for a while, right? Um, but w- what's the background that prompted this book and, and this collection? Who... Uh, who's just responding to—who's saying there's Trinity with hierarchy, or, or, yeah, what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, this dates back, you know, probably a decade or so. There's an entire group of people, particularly connected with, like, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, who have have tried to make the parallel between the relationship of a husband and wife that connects to the relationship, the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son— And so while the husband and the wife are equal in essence and in who they are, there is a subordination of the wife to the husband that parallels the subordination of the son to the father. Because he's the son, he must have some kind of uh, obedience to this father. And this group is arguing that that that's not just as the Son becomes Jesus and is the, the one who lived among us is obedient to the Father, but that this goes all the way back to eternity before creation, and there's uh, they're using the language of authority and submission so that it isn't as closely uh, tied to some heretical views from the past, um, but that the Father has authority over the Son even from eternity because of the Father-Son relationship. Okay. So this book is in reaction to that, in response to that, saying, no, that's not that's not good theology. That's not really what the Nicene Creed and Orthodox theology has taught. Um, and so it's a compilation of a whole bunch of different scholars addressing these from various angles.
0: Okay. So if you're, if you're keeping score at home, yes. let's see if, we, if we've got this right. So the, the idea here is that um, man and woman, husband and wife, are one in being, They have the same— Ontology, just like right. father and son are one in being, right. but that they have different roles, right. and that those roles imply some level of, of submission or subordination. Right now, another layer to this, too, again, if you're having flashbacks to maybe a doctrine class that you yes. took at, at Kuiper, is that you, know, when we talk about Jesus, uh, he is one person, one divine person with two natures, right. divine and human. And when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three, three persons, persons, one nature or essence.
1: Yes. So hopefully
0: everybody jotted right. that down at home. You've got your theological diagrams ready to go. Yeah. Um, so obviously this is this is a deep theological debate, but also but grows out of practical questions about right. how do men and women relate to each other? What is the role of men and women in the church, uh, in society, at yeah. home? How does this all uh, it intersect? So what? Um, so, as you as you took this up, what was the focus of of your article? Yeah, um, if you can remember, I know we're talking about this. The way <laughs> publishing works is it's right. like we got this idea this for a, a book. Ago. Okay, everybody writes the articles, right. and then. Uh, you know chapters and then a couple years later it, it finally hits the printing presses and, yeah. <laughs> and rolls out. Yeah. Um, but so what, what was the focus of your chapter in this book?
1: So the way this book is organized is we've got a bunch of scholars from a different different fields and so the first few chapters deal with like the New Testament, what the New Testament teaches um, and there's some great chapters on there, especially the one on Hebrews and then it moves kind of through history. and so there's some on the early church, there's some on the Reformation. My contribution was particularly the post-reformation. Um, sometimes what are called the Reformed Scholastics, uh, and how they actually uh, addressed not only you know what you were talking about, this one, one being three persons, but then how are these things, how is it that they share this essence, and they use a lot of technical language about communicating the essence and sharing the essence. Um, and then I particularly looked at what do these scholars from that time period, about 1600 to 1800, what did they say about these kinds of questions of the parallel between male and female, husband and wife, and the father, the son, uh, and looked at some of the passages like the First Corinthians 11 passage and, and aspects like this to see, is there any evidence historically that other people had this kind of view that the son submitted at least in some way to the father before creation?
0: Yeah, So, so you're looking to see you're thinking about do they sound like people today right. who are using this language? Um, I guess if we can name names, people like Wayne Grudem, right. uh, who who would say that the Son is the sun is eternally, eternally. in submission to. Yes. You? Does, does, yeah. does yeah. he shy away from language of subordination because yeah, that's a bad? Yeah, it, you they, don't say subordination, but still, the Son eternally. Yeah submits it, to the Father. There
1: used to be eternal functional subordination was one of the languages, but and, uh, sub-subordination sounds very heretical. Um, and so they shifted a little bit to use this language of eternal relationship of authority and submission. Um, and so, yeah, Wayne Gruden, Bruce Ware, Owen Strahan, a lot of those guys are, are using this language to try to argue that it's eternal, it's not just in the incarnation. Um and, and some of them would even try to point to people like John Calvin or others and the language that is there of this ordering of persons yeah. so the father is the first person the son is the second person the spirit is the third person yeah that order must imply some kind of hierarchy or some kind of authority submission piece
0: yeah. And so, what did you, as you dug into that? Yeah. Uh, what What did you see? Were there parallels, or what did these these reformed scholastics, as they're using that language, is no are, are they right? Is Grudem right? No. That this is, okay. <laughs> no, there. I
1: mean, in fact, the scholastics who get really, really technical and parse out, you know, as much as you can possibly do um, on on all these theological aspects. There's no evidence that they would make some kind of claim of eternal relationship of authority and submission. If anything, they're really hesitant to even go that direction because of the heresies that are at the time um, that are teaching the subordination of the son eternally. And so they, they want to stay away from that as much as they can. Um, The way I kind of conclude it is there is in the reformed scholastics, this idea that before the creation of the world, The son voluntarily used his authority, co-equal authority with the father in part of the triune plan to become the incarnate one. And so there's this future oriented, maybe pre-incarnation, we could say, willingness to submit to the father um, as part of the incarnation, but not in the sense that he has always been or eternally been submissive to the father. And and they connect it really with the Trinity and the Triune plan goes into the yeah, plan of redemption before creation, so that they can avoid any any whiff of this being close to heresy.
0: Yeah, so ultimately their their claim doesn't doesn't hold out at no. least not with historically with how people have talked about the Trinity. That no. you that, that that so what you're telling us <laughs> if you're listening try to get this straight is that we should not say that the Son. Is e- eternally in His divine nature that the Son is in this relationship of submission under the authority of the Father. We should not Correct. say that. Correct. We should not say that. But rather that we should. Is this because it's this the fun with things you should and should not say? Sometimes right. here's what you don't say. Right. We can't totally say what you should say.
1: Well, we, uh, we say but, but what we the be, creeds say. The right, Son and yeah. the and the Father have co equal authority. Yeah. They're Athanasian one in essence. Creed. Yeah. They're one in essence. There there is none great there is none greater than the other. They have the same authority. They have the same power. They're omnipotent. Like what is true of the divine is true of the divine son as it is the divine father and as it is the divine spirit.
0: Yeah. And I think what what strikes me as being really important about this especially, you know, because people might be like, what is, you know, this, this intra-Trinitarian, what what right. are we really wrestling with here? Where this really strikes me as being important is uh, w- we're affirming that it is Father, Son, and Spirit who are all together right, working for our redemption. This is not right. the Father has this idea, here's right. how we're going to accomplish redemption, and now the Son has to obey me no matter what, right? Uh, and so I can, you know, In eternity past, if we want to talk about it that way, command the Son. You're going to do this to provide for redemption, and the Son is like, "Well, I would really rather not, but since you've commanded me to, I'm in this relationship of authority and submission. So So I I I must submit. So I must do it. And so, for me, when I think about it that way, what's really at stake here is, can I sing? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That it's it is the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together for us not just the love of the Father, right. sacrificing His Son against His will, right. but that it is, you know, that, that when you think about who God is, this is part of, I think, what all the creeds are trying to affirm about Scripture, is that uh, this is one God, one triune God, uh, who loves us yeah. and who gave Himself
1: And, for us. you know, if I can pitch another book, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, he, he really develops this point that in First John it says God is love, it is His very essence to be love— and before anything was created, before there was any creature to love, the triune God has already been in this loving relationship for all eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If it's this authority of relationship of authority and submission, that's a different kind of love. Than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mutually loving one another, which is what we see as the description that comes out of the early church and that others have have picked up on throughout generations. Of there's this mutual love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, and so maybe one more question, Um, and that is: so, so what does this imply then for how we think about male and female (laughs) relationships? Just one more short, one more short question, and and I guess. That comes out of my own my own sense of this is like if you want to have a discussion right. about different positions like uh, complementarian or egalitarian the role of men and women in church have that discussion right. but don't kind of make this move to trinitarian right. theology right. that that uh, so the point here is you can st- you can still be you could still be a complementarian
1: right. and have oh, yeah.
0: a, uh, sure and be an orthodox trinitarian yeah but the point is don't don't let this kind of drive back into your Trinitarian theology and lead you to a place that's a little bit yeah, problematic.
1: Yeah, what these post-Reformation theologians do is really warn against making analogies. I mean, we do this with, like, the St. Patrick's video and the analogies of the Trinity and stuff, but there, there's actually, Vermigli has this, a, an explicit warning against making analogies between male and female and the Trinity, hmm. um, because it's going to break down, for one thing, but it's also dangerous, and it gets dangerously close to heresy, because you can't really avoid some kind of conclusion about subordinationism. I mean, the other piece is, where's the third person? Yeah. What's the analogy of the Holy Spirit here? Like, is this husband and two wives? Yeah. Well, now we're moving into even weirder territory. Yeah. Um, is this you know, husband, wife, and child, well, you know, well, the child then comes later, so that's also a, a form of heresy, that's Arianism, that there's something that, you know, a person of this triune existence that gets created later. So, I mean, really, there, there are no analogies that sufficiently explain the Trinity. Male, female, husband, wife as a parallel to, um, to, the, to the Trinitarian relationship of the father and the son is not helpful, and we actually have a biblical analogy of the male female relationship it's Christ in the church yeah so there there's also this kind of strange move that using male using husband wife we have the biblical analogy of husband of Christ in the church to then take it to the trinity is a different move that's not really there contextually yeah. in the scriptures
0: yeah so be careful yeah <laughs> be careful about the analogies you're trying to make uh, and recognize again Part of the reason this is so important, we recognize who we are as image bearers of God and recognize who God is, that this is part of the task of theology. Is that we're, right. we're trying to tell the story right, be right. faithful to the Scripture.
1: And, um, I mean, taking us back to what we were talking about earlier with spiritual formation, to know this God who has loved us with a love that surpasses knowledge, to know him as he's made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's... Uh, that's a good note to end on <laughs> uh, the love of God and who he is for us uh, So thanks again for joining us on the Kuiper Collective podcast uh, Thanks Jeff for being here today
1: You're welcome. And
0: uh, we'll look forward to visiting with you again in the future. So until next time blessings